Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome to Lit Mag Love, presented by Room Magazine, and we are lit writers. I'm Rachel Thompson, writer, editor, and online instructor. In this first season of Lit Mag Love, the podcast, I interview editors from literary journals and share readings from the pages of Lit Mags. My aim is for you, dear writer, to find a Lit Mag where you may have your own words cherished by readers. My guest today is Andrea Bennett from Maisonneuve. Maisonneuve literally means new house and suggests the spirit of collective enterprise the magazine gathers under one roof. The magazine takes its name from Paul de Chaumadet de Maisonneuve, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Yes. The man, okay. <laughs> the man who founded Montreal in 1642, a teenage soldier who experienced something of a religious conversion in his 20s, de Maisonneuve came from Champagne, where his last remains can be found today. And you heard, heard her before, but um, I'm going to also introduce Andrea Bennett. So her writing has been published by The Atlantic, The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, Maisonneuve, Hazlitt, Vice, Geist, Reader's Digest, and others. And her essay, Water Upon the Earth, received gold in the essay category at the 2015 National Magazine Awards. In 2013, her piece, Unmasked, Searching for Lessons in Toronto's 2010 G20 Debacle, received the National Magazine Award Honorable Mention in the Politics and Public Interest category. Andrea is also a poet. Her first book of poetry, Canoodlers, came out with Nightwood Editions in 2014. She is currently working on travel guides to Montreal and Quebec City for Moon Travel. So Andrea is coming to us today as the editor-in-chief of Maisonneuve. She's also a researcher for Reader's Digest and a columnist at this magazine and the designer for PRISM. Originally from Hamilton, she currently lives in Montreal. She holds a BA in English and French from the University of Guelph and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of British Columbia. She is represented by Stephanie Sinclair of Tra at Transatlantic. So welcome, Andrea. Good morning. Good morning. I love all the different you know, aspects of the magazine business that you're involved in, and I, I can't wait to ask you a bit about that. And um, But before I do that, I'm going to ask you first, just generally, how did you come to writing? Was there a teacher or a book that got you off on the writing bug? That's a really good question. I read a lot as a kid. Um, I was a pretty quiet, introverted, weird kid with not a lot of, uh, with very few friends. So reading was sort of the way I connected with the world. So I bet that would have had an influence, although not really direct. When I was a teenager, I really loved Alice Munro's writing, and that was maybe the first inkling I had that it was perhaps something I wanted to do myself. 
my maternal grandfather, um, who only actually had a grade eight education in his later years, wrote a lot of short stories, autobiographical short stories, a lot of them about his time in the Second World War. And he sometimes would take me when I was a teenager to these writing groups that he would go to at the library. So that was my first introduction to, I don't know if it's amateur, non, non-professional writers, people who were trying to learn how to write uh, through feedback from uh, their peers. And that's sort of probably, those are the roots of how I came to writing. And then I took a long winding path after that. Because at first it really didn't seem very possible. Uh, I come from a lower middle class background, and so I always thought I would probably make a. I was encouraged to make sort of a safer choice. Um, Writing is not financially the best choice to make to make a living. So I think that same grandfather maybe encouraged me to be a teacher. Yeah, which I would not have been good at. Uh, so it's probably best things worked out the way they did. Wow. So he was really interested in, in writing, but not, he didn't think of it as a career. No, as a side project. He was an electrician. So who is the first writer that you met then besides your grandfather? I guess the first like writer, I'm doing air quotes right now, but the you know published author, I guess. So that I can remember were, so I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph and this is prior to the Guelph Humber MFA. I'm like, As I was graduating, I think maybe it started the year after that. So um, we had people in the English department who taught some creative writing courses. So Janice Kulik-Kiefer, who's a poet, and Thomas King were the first couple of writers I had as instructors um, in creative writing classes in the first couple of published writers I met. I also had a third class, but I can't remember the professor I can't remember his name, and I, he didn't like me, and I didn't like him, so, oh well. <laughs> Maybe better um, that you forget then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was really discouraging, actually, but Janice Kulik Kiefer and Thomas King were amazing people to learn from, and also just, I was sort of in awe of uh, being in their classes. It was, I felt a little starstruck, particularly with Thomas King. Well, that's wonderful. So how did you go then from being a writer to an editor? and? I like to ask editors what qualities they think editing requires apart from grammatical chops, things that differ just from just reading and writing. Yeah, so that's a good question. I did some writing for, I guess, probably what would be classified as like leftist publications, publications with like a clear political view when I was in university. Um, I also started pulling together a zine for an arts organization in Guelph called Kazoo. So that was sort of the first editing that I did and I liked it and I sort of went from there. It's been like a really slow road for me. So I joined the editorial board at Carousel, a lit mag that is in Guelph. And then when I came to uh, the University of British Columbia to do my MFA, I ended up becoming a poetry editor for Prism Literary Magazine and then Uh, Prism International. And then I worked as an executive editor for them. And after that, um, let's see, it was Adbusters and this magazine and then Maisonov, I think is sort of how that went. And each position I had sort of, I had a little bit more responsibility with each 
position. Yeah, it's been sort of a slow road. Maybe started in, well, the mid-2000s. So um, in terms of the qualities that editing requires that are different from writing or reading, I think that as an editor, it's really important to cultivate a couple of different things. One is an awareness of what's being published elsewhere. So um, keeping on top of like both the news, but then also like magazine pieces are, is really important. So if you want to be editing or even writing features, you should be reading a bunch of them and trying to understand how they work because there are a variety of different ways you can structure any given story. And it's interesting to think about how any given one, like what choices have been made for any given one. And I think that the other thing when it comes to editing that's important, um, and this is something I sort of learned as a, in workshop at UBC, and that's to take a look at any given piece and think, any given draft of a piece, and try to see where it could go. As a magazine editor, it's important for me to try to make the piece, a piece as, as good as it can be based on sort of a mixture of its own terms like, what do I think the writer is doing here? How can I help the writer improve? But then also, like, what does the magazine need from this? Why are my readers going to find this important? So I sort of keep both of those things in mind as I'm editing. And at Mason, if we go through anywhere from four to seven edits with any given piece. So they tend to start fairly substantive and get a little bit narrower as time goes on. But there's a lot of sort of collaborative work that goes on between a writer and an editor to make that happen. Wonderful. Yeah. And I think it really shows in the quality of the journal. And Thank you. I remember, I remember you from Adbusters. I think that's where I first saw your name because I was just oh in the 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to shift gears a bit and, and ask you about, I guess, more about your role at Maisonneuve. We were talking about editing in general, but I, I want to, I know you've had a couple roles at Maisonneuve and I'm wondering how, how you know you found your home there and, and what has it meant to you to be at that magazine for so long? Because I know you like recently, it's just in the last year you became the editor-in-chief. Yes. So I started, I think the first feature I wrote for Maisonneuve came out in 2011 and I had written maybe a blog post for them in 2009. Oh, maybe a little later than that, maybe 2010. How did I know I'd find my home there? From the very first feature I worked on, so Drew Nellis was my editor on that piece, and he worked with me really closely and almost actually, honestly, like taught me how to write a feature because this is the first one I'd ever written. It was a contentious issue, and it was a 6,000-word piece, and I had came to it as a writer and not a reporter, so I had no real reporting skills at that point in time. Andrew really guided me through that process. And I was also really impressed. Maisonov has a really thorough fact-checking process. So I think that every writer and every journalist probably has their own like political opinions or viewpoints. And that informs what we find important and what we want to write about. But it's really, really important to me as a writer and editor to be thorough and fair and to have like all of my ducks lined up in a row when it comes to uh, facts. And that was not something I had always experienced. That was not something I experienced at Adbusters, which has a different set of goals. And then my role at this magazine was just a little, I was the news columns editor, so shorter pieces. I really love features. Features are super satisfying. 
So Maisonov, I think there's like this level of ambition there and also just the perspective of the magazine wanting to tell important stories and not shying away from controversy that was a really good, that wasn't, is a really good fit for me. So I started as an associate editor after I'd written some features for them. And then Daniel Viola, who now works at The Walrus, when he moved on from a, uh, being editor-in-chief to working at The Walrus, I came on as the EIC. And as I mentioned in the intro, you're a poet, an award-winning essayist, and a graphic designer with PRISM. How, how do you find all of these disciplines, all of the, you know, the multiple aspects and roles that you've played in journals, how do they inform your work at Maison Neuve? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure how to answer. So poetry and prose are a little bit like running and cycling in that there are some things that cross over and other things that don't. I love that um, analogy. <laughs> running and which one is running and which one is cycling? Um, I think that poetry is cycling and prose is running. And the reason I say that is that so from from cycling, like long distances, it really helps my like the longevity of my cardio um, in a way that translated well into running. But running had very little to offer cycling. And so I feel that way. So poetry for me, you think so much about language and the importance of how words come together and all the different options you have when you're writing. Yes. I write primarily prose poetry. And so I think that translates into prose in terms of like a fluidity in approaching any given line and thinking a lot about not only the structure of the piece, but how it functions on a line to line basis, a sentence to sentence and word to word basis. So that probably informs yeah, probably poetry informs prose more than more than the other way around. Being a graphic designer, I think it's probably just good to come into anytime you can have a bit of knowledge about what the other people at a magazine are doing to achieve their goals and do their jobs. It's always then then you have an understanding of what you're asking of them when you're demanding changes or when you're giving feedback. Mm-hmm. And so, on the other hand, it's also great as an editor to have a designer who understands writing. Oh yes, of course. Because That's I've super had, important. Yeah. Like right now, Megan Bell, who edits these, these episodes and is also the publisher at Room, she's also our graphic designer. And it's just so easy because she knows what, what you mean when you're saying, oh, I need all the ellipses to be this way or, or, you know, any kind of minor, like really technical or specific font or, you know, um, grammatical changes that you want to make. Yeah, it's super important. And I also think it informs, I don't know, it, like that the, the sort of like visual syntax of a magazine matches up with its text or even something as simple as like laying out a pull quote, like where should the lines on the pull quote break? Um, what makes the most sense? That kind of thing. Yeah. Or like a head or a deck even for that matter. But yeah. So that's true. It's really great when a designer has a sense of writing and text. So I want to ask you a bit about pitching and how that works at Maison Neuve, because before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how Maison Neuve has that kind of hybrid space where you're right, you can write, or an essayist have that experience often too, where you're, you're pitching in a kind of journal, like which is a journalistic practice, but you're pitching more creative writing. So mm-hmm. how does pitching work? work at Maison Neuve? We do. I mean, I should say, so we do publish essays. We also do like long form journalism. So 
you're sort of like a mix. And that's true of most of the sort of like nat- national general interest magazines. It's true of the Walrus. It would be true of like Harper's and New Yorker in the States. But in terms of making that transition, if you're used to, say, like writing a piece more or less on your own and, and then getting it to the point where you want to send it out, there are a couple things that will definitely be different. Um, one of them is that it's it's really important to learn how to pitch. And Haley Cullingham broke this down really well the other day in terms of like how to reverse engineer a pitch from a piece. And so her suggestion was to pick the like most interesting scene from your essay. And that's another thing, like general interest mags are looking for scenes, like action unfolding in time, as opposed to anything too, too exposition heavy. So pick your most important scene, like the most interesting scene, and then try to act as if like a friend, why the story is important. Like we kind of all do little mini pitches if we talk about our writing with our friend, with our writer friends, like we do it fairly regularly. So for general interest mag, we're interested in why the story is important to you, why you're the person to tell it. And then also like why it's important for a broader audience. What is the importance of telling this particular story at this particular time? What research have you done to be able to tell the story? And what are the characters in the story? Who are the characters in the story? Those are the things you want to see in a pitch. And then it's also helpful to know like a bit about the person who's pitching. Um, So short bio that can include publication credits, or if you don't really have any of those, then just sort of underlining why you are the person to tell the story, whether or not, or whether you have like a particular, uh, this crazy experience happened to you, or you have a particular knowledge area that helps you be the right person for this story. And then after we accept a pitch, we might have feedback like right at that very point in time. So if we have questions, we might pose them to try to figure out, well, there are a variety of different things we might be trying to figure out. But then we also might have suggestions when it comes to like, oh, it seems like what you're suggesting kind of ties into this broader issue that's happening politically or culturally or socially right now. Is that something you've considered? We'd suggest talking to an expert to bolster the information you have in this particular area, that kind of stuff. And then usually there's a pretty long lead time. So it could be anywhere from a month to three or four months at Maisonet. We like to try to plan ahead. And then once the first draft gets submitted, we go through an editing process that lasts just over two months with a writer. There'll be a handling editor on the piece, someone who works with the writer to, to try to get the piece like as, to that point where it's, it's as good as it can be. And then we have a secondary editor who comes in to do another couple edits at the end to really polish it. And then we do fact-checking, copy editing, and proofing. So all in all, our cycle is about three months, and two of those months are are fairly intensive editing. Wonderful. And I'm going to ask you, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the kind of writing you want to see more of, but first we're just going to take a quick sponsor break. Sure. I'll be back with Andrea and we're going to talk about the specifics of what, she, what she's seeing in terms of submissions and what she'd like to see more of after the break. This season of Lit Mag Love, the podcast is brought to you by my course, Lit Mag Love. So if you're a writer who wants to feel like a professional, not an amateur, but you just need some proof that you're not wasting your time with this writing thing, 
and nobody's given you that official card to confirm you're a writer. Or if you're a writer who'd love to finish some pieces, but you're having trouble with focus and motivation. Or maybe you're a writer who just wants to get your writing out in the world, and instead it's gathering dust in a miscellaneous writing file on your computer, and you just need help staying accountable. I suggest you check out my course, Lit Mag Love. And you can find out more about it at litmaglove.com, where you can get one free lesson. So now we are back with Andrea Bennett from Maison Neuve. And I'd like to ask you, Andrea, what kind of writing do you want to see more of? And then the flip side of that is what kind of writing would you rather not see again for a long time? Yeah, good question. Okay, I'll start with the um, what would you rather not see again for a very long time. As I mentioned, Maison Neuve has like a really long lead time. We are quarterly. So we're generally booking stories like well and ahead of time. So that means that while we do like to be plugged into what's happening politically and culturally and socially in the world around us, we can't really do anything that's tied to any like really pressing news peg. So if a story has been extraordinarily popular, then it's difficult for us to find new things to say about that particular story. So we're not closed off to writing about, I don't even know if I should invoke his name, like the Jordan Peterson pronouns, free speech type of thing. Unless a writer is bringing a very particular interesting perspective, it would be difficult for us. Even if you send us a really great pitch, we're probably not the place for it because we're not going to be able to turn that piece around as quickly as it needs to be turned around. But that being said, like maybe there's an opportunity for a deep dive or maybe someone uncovers more information than has been reported on. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. Uh, Donald Trump can appear in a piece <laughs> briefly, but I, I don't need to have any more pitches directly about him. I'm sure you're getting uh, a lot, yeah. Or Justin Trudeau's socks also probably. Like, please pitch us about our federal government, but... Any story that's too well-trodden, we're not going to be able to do a lot with. I see what um, you did there with the socks yeah. and trotting. <laughs> I'm not even on purpose. Always looking for those. Uh, any puns that can find. And then in terms of what we're looking for in a pitch, there are a variety of different kinds of pitches that make me really excited. So we love personal journalism that blends reporting with an author's experiences. So there's a really amazing piece essay that we ran a few issues ago now called Photo Day by Sila Rizvik. And she, as a two-year-old, had spent time, her family spent time in a refugee camp before coming to Canada. And they'd had a picture taken of them that was published in the newspaper. And so she wrote about, from her perspective, but then also doing some research about what it's like to be on the other side of the lens in terms of like refugee camp photos. And it was a super well-written piece and just, yeah, it sort of ticks all of my boxes as an editor. Like, why are you the person to tell the story? Oh, it's because we often don't hear in the news from people who, who spend time at refugee camps. Um, we're used to having them be reported on instead of telling their own stories. So that was a really great, amazing piece. Anything that, that is a story about a part of Canada that most people don't know about is great. So recently, um, 
Daniel Paniton and Aaron Schurz, who are historians, wrote a piece talking about how the centennial sort of informs the sesquicentennial. Oh, darn it. Canada 150. Let's just go with that. <laughs> I can't really actually. I'm not very good at talking. Um, my forte is written words. Sesquicentennial. Oh, no. Never mind. I'm not even going to attempt okay. it. <laughs> it's one of those it. words that you read all the time and I <laughs> to say it. So that was really interesting because they brought sort of like a, a depth of research ability from their academic perspectives that, that was great. And then Robin Maynard also did something a little bit similar-ish. She wrote a piece for us called Ku Klux Canada, and that was about the history of anti-Black racism in Canada, including just a lot of information about just how active the Ku Klux Klan was here. Um, and I think that that is not something... I mean, maybe now a little bit. There have been a few pieces that have come out looking at white supremacy in Canada, but I think that was also an important story to tell. And she dug up some historical facts that I know that I found initially shocking as someone who has read uh, about Canadian history, but just completely unaware of that. Not completely unaware. Not as aware as I should be about that particular area. So that kind of stuff excites me a lot as an editor. When I receive a pitch that's about something that I have never really heard about and either at all or at that level of depth, and sometimes it's like a super important historical issue. Other times it's, uh, it's sort of like quirky Canadiana, which I also enjoy reading about. And then in-depth reported features. So I would actually, I've been waiting, I would love for someone to report more on CSIS and spying in Canada because there hasn't been like a really satisfying feature yet, for example, about what we know that CSIS, I think, like kept an eye on a lot of different Indigenous groups, for example, like Indigenous activist groups. And not enough has come to light about what impact that's had, particularly around uh, like oil and gas and pipeline activism. And I'm just waiting for those revelations to go forward. And I really want a piece of it. I would love to receive a pitch about that. That's very specific. But if your ears are perking up and you're like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. I can do that. Please, please send me that pitch. <laughs> um, tell me what to pitch to you. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but anything of along course, it has to be the person who can tell the story, like you said. Too. Yeah. And what you can do, if you can figure out how to get the access, either through like Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act um, applications, or a lot of this stuff comes through like, are there like leaks or sort of like accidental Anyway, whatever. Yeah, you do kind of have to be the person to be able to tell the story. That's true. So you receive a lot of pitches, and I'm wondering if you could tell us the proportion of pitches that you receive compared to how many you publish, but also if you had all the space and time in the world, how many of them would you publish to? So just talk, getting down to the nitty-gritty of the quality of these pitches. Sure. So actually, I'd say that those two numbers probably are fairly similar. If you exclude the overlaps, so we've already accepted a piece, a really good pitch, and we receive like a second really good pitch that has too much overlap with that first pitch, then then we'll need to decline it because we can't run two super similar pieces. So that does happen. But oftentimes the stories that we are really excited about, we actually do get to accept, we get to accept them. Um, and we'll just book them sort of further in advance than we would normally. 
but I'd say the rate of acceptance is, oh dear, maybe around 5%. Would that be one in 20? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe one in 20 or one in 25 or so around, around that. Maybe slightly, slightly lower depending on the time of the year. There are times of year when we get like a flood of submissions and other times when it's uh, less, not a trickle, but it's not a flood. So the flood times, probably it's a little lower, but I'd say it probably hovers around 5%. And what are the flood times then? When, when do you get more pitches? People feel really stoked on life in fall and spring. Like, <laughs> uh, like a, I think the increased productivity. And for us, people who are in journalism programs, when they're in school and when they're working on stuff in classes, we, I think, tend to see probably a bit of an uptick in, in pitches around that time. But fall and spring, um, broadly. Okay. Quieter in winter and summer. So people who are looking to publish should pitch in winter and summer, especially for the first time? Yeah, sure. Are you around then, though? Or like, is, is no, that... I'm around all the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. It's <laughs> a good inside track. Okay, and I want to shift and ask you a bit about diversity and, mm-hmm. and making sure that multiple perspectives and voices are reflected in literature. And this is something I'm asking all the magazines that we're interviewing for the podcast. Yeah. So what what things has Maison Neuve done to let writers of all backgrounds know their work is welcome in its pages? Have you done, I think we talked before and you've done some audits as well too of the magazine, is that right? So... One of the things that we do very specifically is for our book room, we keep diversity in mind. So we review four or five books every issue in our book room. And we're looking at race, gender, and sexuality. And then also sort of regionally where someone is from in Canada as we're making the decisions about what books we're going to review. Oh, I should also say that the other constraint is that we make sure that we have poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and graphic novel. And then the fifth one's kind of a floater. So our book room, we come at in like a very quantitative way. And we have the ability to do that because we're assigning the books. So our only limitation is sort of like what's coming out. And then if we have a month where our numbers aren't where we'd like them to be, then that's something we keep in mind for the upcoming issues. So we can try to adjust that balance a bit. In terms of the rest of the magazine, Byline diversity is definitely something we keep in mind. And Erica Lenti talked about this a little bit uh, with me for like an editor's roundtable blog post. We're cognizant of the fact that some stories are are, uh, best told by someone in in a community who's affected by that story. That's not always the case. So you can obviously write about things as as a reporter, as a magazine journalist that don't affect you personally. But it's definitely something we like to keep in mind. We wouldn't want to have like solely white writers about issues that affect different like racialized peoples in Canada. And then at the same time also we don't we don't want a writer to have to feel like they have to write about something that's tied to their personal identity. So if you're a queer writer or a racialized writer and you want to write about something that's not personal in that way at all. We want writers to have the freedom, feel like they have the freedom to do that also. So that's something that we've made clear when we have called, we've done calls for pitches before, like 
just that we're looking for writers from diverse backgrounds. And it's also something that I hope, like if readers are, are reading, if writers are reading a magazine, they can sort of have a sense of what we're trying to do. Like the, the magazine itself is an encouragement to pitch the story that's important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I, so Amazon is an amazing magazine. I love it. We don't have a ton of money. So I think one thing that could be done with magazines that have higher word rates that I don't fully feel comfortable doing as an editor is assigning stories to people or reaching out to people to encourage them to pitch. Well, second part, it, we need to be really upfront about our, our pay scale. So if we had a dollar a word or $2 a word, um, that's something we'd be doing more often is like actually like direct outreach. But our, our skill sort of comes in, we love to get pitches from established writers, don't get me wrong. But I think that what we have to offer too is a really great editing experience for emerging writers and people who are learning so that they've a published piece that they feel proud of, hopefully. Anyways, this is sort of like veered off a little bit, but that's the kind of stuff we keep in mind. And it's definitely like, uh, no, but that's definitely part of it because yeah. people need to be compensated for their work and, th- and that can impact diversity when people are affected differently by the yeah. ability to do work for cheap. <laughs> and to be honest, I think it's one of the ironies of, Oh, the, there tends to be a little bit of a mismatch in terms of like, oh, what what is a magazine's like value? What are magazines' values? What do they care about? And then what's what's that magazine's budget? So like just from reading a lot of Canadian magazines and having like a general sense of them, it really feels like a lot of the magazines that do the best on byline diversity and and probably mass head diversity have lower pay rates than the magazine, the national magazines that have higher pay scales and like great diversity on, um, on the byline front. So that's something I don't, I, well, I shouldn't say I don't know how to solve that problem, but it's a persistent problem. I think it's, hopefully I think it's like slowly getting better. Um, Mm -hmm. and now we can have like more complex conversations like, okay, national magazine, I see that you've had an uptick in diversity when it comes to like your bylines have you noticed that mostly you're asking people to write opinion pieces that respond to some other crappy thing some conservative person said Um, (laughs) like maybe maybe we can complicate that a little start to move beyond that paradigm yes oh my god hallelujah this is great (laughs) and and you're so astute in saying that about those national magazines too yeah well, thanks. I'm invested in them because I'm a writer and I want them to, to just be better and get better. So, but it's something we all have to work on as editors. And uh, massive diversity, Haley Collingham brought up as something like something else that's like really pressing. Yeah. And when it comes to that sort of like editorial pipeline, like people learning, people teaching, we really need to start working more on that also it's not just about writers it's also about editors and it's a skill set thing people bring different things to these roles so it's actually like it's it's important it's important as an equity issue and i think it's actually also really important in terms of journalism if we want better journalism we really need to work on diversity so can you tell me a bit about some writers that you've discovered through your work and who you, who you still read today 
Oh yeah, so I think I've mentioned a few of them so far. Uh, actually, so Sila Rizvik, who's an essayist, who's great. I, I'm really like I'm keeping an eye out for what she'll be doing next. Robin Maynard, who I mentioned, her book, Policing Black Lives, is coming out soon. And so I think our associate editor, Kim Fu, is going to read that. And anyway, stoked about that. Daniel Paniton and Aaron Schurz, those uh, historians I mentioned, I'm looking forward to seeing what they'll do next. It's always interesting to see people who cross over from a particular academic discipline into magazine writing, and it's something I'd like to work I'd like to work with more people who'd like to do that. Um, it can be a bit of a learning curve in terms of like switching from academic writing to magazine writing, but people have these really specific knowledge sets that wish that uh, the general population could learn about through magazine writing. And then also, I guess I should mention uh, Miriam Schuschman, who's a doctor and a science feature writer. She wrote a feature for us and will be writing another feature for us and is an amazing feature writer and another sort of example of someone who has a very specific knowledge base and then is able to use that to do just an amazing amount of specified research in order to write a feature. So those are the people who sort of like bubbled to mind. Oh, and I guess I should also say um, Richard Kemick, whose name is probably familiar to most of the people listening to this podcast, has published with Mazenov and his writing is everywhere now. And so he has like, I think two different stories, long listed or short listed for the Journey Prize. He's a very talented writer and it was really exciting to work with him for the first time. And I'm sort of always stoked to see what he'll put out next and like what his, he has a poetry book, but like what his first prose book will be. I'm very curious. Yeah. Nice. I love just to hear the passion that you have for the, for the writing that you do publish and the people and the you know the connections that you've made and and I also really love that you're bridging people with that really specific knowledge and helping teach them how to how to write and 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 be understood I guess by readers and that's just it's like it seems like just a great service to do and I, I, I love how you put it too that it's like a way that you're making up for okay there's not a great pay scale here but there's a great learning opportunity here yeah, I, it's my favorite job in the world. I hope I can sort of do it forever. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> I can hear that. That's great. So I asked you before our interview today to prepare to talk about a recent piece that you published and why oh. you published it. And so can you tell me a bit about that piece? Sure. So our summer 2017 cover story was a story called Black Market Babies by Adam Elliott Segal. And in that piece, he explored the social, cultural, and legal realities that led to the development of a thriving underground baby smuggling ring in mid-century Montreal. So a baby smuggling ring, crazy story. Um, So basically Quebec at that time had a religious matching law when it came to adoption, and there was a bit of a population mismatch. There were a number of young unwed Catholic women. This is before the silent revolution in Quebec and then who wished to give babies up for adoption when they became pregnant and then across sort of post-war North America generally slightly older Jewish families who were looking to adopt babies so that led to a situation where a number of Montreal-based doctors and lawyers sort of took advantage of both sides of uh, that story so they ran underground birthing centers and forged birth certificates and then uh, used baby smugglers to bring 
Catholic babies from their unwitting birth mothers to their unwitting adoptive parents who raised them Jewish and thought they were Jewish. So Adam Elliott Segal, the writer of that piece, spoke with several adoptees who are now grown. Most of them are in their 60s, I believe to see how the obfuscation of their biological roots impacted their understandings of their culture, their identities, and their family lives. And Adam's mother was one of these adoptees, so he had a particular window into that story. Wow, so, yeah, it's hitting all the, all the yeah. right notes for you, I can see. <laughs> yeah, so um, Adam sent us a super strong pitch that outlined the story he wanted to tell, outlined his personal ties, and like at this point, the years of research he'd done in the lead-up to pitching, I think this is a story that was personally important to him. So we would have been interested in the story if it had been said in Vancouver or Halifax, but there's, there's sort of like an added bonus there for us, I think, because Maisonneuve is based in Montreal. So that made us a particularly good fit for the story and, and like vice versa. So we published that story because it tells, and it's important, important and not particularly well-known part of Montreal history and Canadian history, and it has broad and lasting effects even into the States, actually. And we also really appreciated that personal journalism aspect of this feature. He, um, like having grown up with his mother, Adam, as I said, had this like window into some of the deeper issues around identity. Yeah, it's an amazing story. So we're going to wrap up pretty shortly. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. So one is, is it possible for writers to get involved behind the scenes at Maison Neuve? I know you're hiring right now at the time of this recording, but I'm thinking more as a, like as a reader or in a volunteer capacity to learn a bit more about how the magazine works. Um, we're a super small staff, so the opportunities for that are somewhat limited. That being said, there are twice annually, there's an opportunity to join us as a research intern. Um, we bring on research interns and train people how to fact check. So uh, we bring on three people for two issues. So that ends up being six people a year. But it's very structured. Like we post that notice that we're looking for interns at a particular point in time. And then we bring them on for more like five months for two issues. So yes, there's an opportunity, but it is also very structured. So we don't really have the capacity to bring people on as readers or volunteers in other ways, unfortunately, just because our time is very sort of organized and necessarily organized and regimented. We are con currently hiring an associate editor. Applications are due September 1st, if, if, uh, if this podcast is coming out before then. No, it's going to come out after. Okay, okay, sorry. Um, well, that part can be cut. <laughs> No, but it's it's good to know. I mean, that positions do open up, and that people could think about working, like working at a magazine if you've been writing for a while, mm -hmm. making the transition to editing. And so, my last question is just: How can writers submit or pitch their work to Maison Neuve? You know, where where would they find details on doing that? And is there are there limits around how many times a year they can do it, and those kind of things? So, if you go to maisonneuve.org and Maisonneuve, as you mentioned, is like new house in French. One S, two N's. Under magazine, you'll find contribute. So that will give you a breakdown of our submission guidelines and link you to our submittable. Alternatively, you can send me pitches at andrea at maisonof.org. We don't accept unsolicited poetry or fiction submissions, but we're always looking for strong reported nonfiction pitches. There's no limit on the number of times a year you can send a pitch, but I would ask that you please not send uh, 500 poems 
them. <laughs> uh, and that is not going to work out well for either of us. So send as many pictures as you like, though. So how does one get fiction or poetry in the journal? Are you going out and looking for those? Yes, we solicit fiction and poetry. So we read lit mags, keep an eye on what books are coming out. We only get to publish about, we get to publish four poets a year and four short stories a year. And those short stories are 2,000 words or under. Mm. And fiction or poetry is, fiction and poetry is also an area in which we keep diversity in mind. So again, it's, it's easier to do that when, when we're soliciting rather than going through the slush pile for looking for like those four things we can publish in a year. Basically the volume to number of opportunities we have to publish just doesn't make sense for those two particular areas. But yeah, it comes in handy that both, so Kim Fu is the associate editor. She's a novelist and poet and I'm a poet. I don't write fiction, but I read a lot of fiction. So both of us have our like feet in that world also. So yeah. we just read a lot and we try to get a blend of folks who are perhaps a little more established in their career and then folks who are emerging but whose voices we really love so it's entirely possible that like we'll read come across something in a lit mag it might even be someone's like first publication and we'll reach out to them and ask them to see if we can see some poems what off the top of your head can you name a couple lit mags that you're reading so people know where they might be seen oh i get a bunch of them at my house so arc and cb2 and i think i get prairie fire as well prism we get, I think we, well, we definitely get dice. I think we might get subterrane at the office. Yeah, and then I read a lot of stuff online too. Stuff online is really helpful. Oh, and poetry is dead. Basically a bunch of different Canadian lit mags at different points in the year. Stuff sort of, sort of like floats across my desk, thankfully. And then I sort of skim through them all. And some I'll end up reading like almost cover to cover and others so I'll flip through a little bit more and just like looking for a sentence or a poem to leap out at me kind of. Um, but yeah, we do, Kim and I generally read like fairly, fairly regularly, most of Canada's current lit mags. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing your lit mag love with us today and for doing this interview. I really appreciate it and um, have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yay. <laughs> This episode of Lit Mag Love the Podcast is brought to you by Lit Mag Love the Course. And in the course, you learn how to find an audience for your writing and you get ready for more visibility in the writing community. Another part of the course that students really love and writers tell me after that was the best part for them was finding a writing community that embraces you. So if you feel like, you know, writing is done in this quiet solitude, which it is, and that and that's definitely part of the writing life is, is writing on your own, but maybe you're yearning for a community of like-minded people, of writers who are also working on being seen and sharing their work with the world, then I do, again, suggest you check out my course, litmeglove.com. There is a free lesson for you to try it to see if you like it. Hope to see you there. So we learned a lot of things from Andrea Bennett about what they're looking for at Maisonneuve and also about pitching to journals. So 
One of the things she does herself as an editor, and she suggests that people who are writing essays do as well, is to cultivate an awareness of what is being published elsewhere. So read a bunch of features elsewhere and just know the market that you're entering into. Because as she said, they're, they're not going to be publishing more newsy pieces, timely pieces, because it takes about three months to publish. They're going to be publishing a piece that looks a little bit more deeply at, at an issue or gives new information that hasn't been published before and that they know will not be published in the interim between when you pitch and when you publish. And she talks about also her job being to try to make the piece as good as it can be. And it sounds like Maisonneuve really does that well. They go through about seven rounds of editing with a writer. So it's definitely a place to hone your craft if you're newer to essay writing and you want to get some really great hands-on experience with an editor who's going to help you. When I asked Andrea about the kind of writing they want to see more of. Again, they're looking for that deep dive or that new information. They do love personal journalism and they love reporting and authors' experiences. They're looking for people who have that experience. So when she's talking about um, refugee camps, they're talking from the perspective of someone who had their photo taken in a refugee camp. When they're talking about this adoption story, the adoption scandal of smuggling children, they're, they're taking a journalistic pitch from someone who is the child of someone who was one of the adoptees in that case. And she did mention two things, specific, really specific things that she'd love to see a pitch on. One is just a part of Canada that people don't know a lot about. Maisonneuve based in Montreal is looking at, at Canadian and Canadiana. And the other was really, really specific. It's a report on spying in Canada and CSIS, which is the Canadian's intelligence agency. So those would be things that would be welcome for her to receive a pitch on. Maisonneuve publishes four times a year, and it's considered a general interest magazine, though it publishes fiction and poetry, but it does not accept submissions for those. It only accepts pitches. And their word count for the nonfiction pieces can range from 750 to 6,000 words, Although the 751s are usually ones that are based in Montreal. There's a, a short section at the end of the magazine for that. Their reading period is year-round. Although you heard it here that she gets, uh, Andrea gets fewer pitches in the summer and winter. And those would be good times to probably get your pitch read and, and heard when, when you're not um, competing with as many other pitches. And they do accept both pitches as well as polished drafts. But they indicate on their website they have a strong preference for well-developed, well-researched pitches. Show notes for this episode are available on litmaglovepodcast.com. And there you'll also be able to sign up to be notified when new episodes come out. If you feel some litmag love for this episode, please tell us in a review on iTunes. When you do, you will automatically be entered for a bi-weekly draw for a subscription to Room Magazine. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.